This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. This episode is brought to you by SoFi. Refinancing student loans with SoFi saves an average of $19,000. Members also get access to free career services and coaching. Find out more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Today's show is also brought to you by Mac Weldon, and I've been talking to you about Mac Weldon for so long, I no longer need to read sponsor copy anymore. I can just tell you, Michael Rapino, that Mac Weldon makes awesome hoodies, sweatshirt, underwear, socks. I'm wearing the socks right now. Can you tell how comfortable they are? They are. I can see it in you. You can see the comfort radiating over my body. They're made of antimicrobial fiber, so I smell awesome as well right now. You can wear them to work out. I wouldn't do that, but you can wear them to podcast. You can wear them for your special date night, whatever you want. Go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off with the offer code RECODE. That helps me. Maybe it helps Michael Rapino as well. If for some reason you don't like this stuff, I can't imagine that's the case. You hang on to it. Mac Weldon sends you your money back. What a business model. Wow. Amazing. 20% off. MacWeldon.com. Type the offer code RECODE in. MacWeldon.com. Offer code RECODE. Michael Rapino, you're in the concert business, but you're really in the ad business, right? Yeah. We're, uh, so how was that? As a professional ad guy, rate my performance there. You got a voice in radio. Yeah, yeah, I got a face for radio. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael Rapino, you run Live Nation, which means you run the concert and live event business in this country and really most of the world. Am I summarizing your position correctly? We are a, a global company. Yes. You're a global company. But basically, if, if you are going to a concert and if you're going to a live show of any sort, very good odds that your company is taking a cut of whatever I spent there, either to buy a ticket Coca-Cola, whatever, you guys are probably participating in that. If it's not you, it's your competitor, AEG. Am I summing up the, the landscape correctly? Yeah, I think in a, on a global basis, we're in 40 countries. So in 40 different countries around the world, 70-plus shows a day are happening under the Live Nation name. So um, whether it's the concert we're producing, the venue we lease, own, manage, the artists we manage. Buying ticket a ticket master, through Ticketmaster. That's you, um, or the food and beverage would be uh, would be part of our ecosystem. So you're doing 70 shows a day, gazillion shows a year. When we hear this, we'll probably be well into the concert season. So if I'm going to go see who Drake this year, Beyonce, that's you, right? Yep. It's a good business to be in. It sounds like a good business to be in. Yes. Uh, the music business in general is contracting, has been contracting for a long time. One of the reasons I wanted to have you in here is because we've heard for years now as, as record sales, CD sales, very antiquated term, digital download sales all decline. The answer is always, one of the answers has always been, oh, these guys should just go make it up by going on tour. That's, that's how artists are going to go make their money. Sounds easy. Probably right. is not so easy though, right? Right. Well, you know, I think it's, it's a double edge. For the first, you know, 30, 40 years uh, the business for an artist was to get a record deal. And the record deal would have been a, you know, a huge advance. It would have been a big deal. Uh, and that paid your bills. And they gave you tour support. They played for your video. And you went on tour to promote your album. You went on tour to promote your album. And, um, and, the, and the quality of the show was, was minimal, right? You know, spotlights were minimal, a few trucks, a great performance, but it wasn't a visual experience it is today. And the economics didn't make it that. And then obviously... As Napster and others started to happen in the digital download uh, era, the record revenue started to decline dramatically at the exact same time. You know, we, we always think it's somewhere in the Stones era, about 1990 Steel Wheels, where that tour started to become a, a real spectacle. Spectacle with, with price tags to match. Price tags to match, but also... Hundreds of dollars go, for a ticket. Yeah, but I'm going to go the other way. You know, people think the ticket is... 
you know, comes out of the air. The reason the ticket increased is because the production values increased. You know, so the Stones, who really created the spectacle um, of a stadium tour with 35, 40 transport trucks, huge weekly running cost to put that magnificent show on, thus then you have to charge the right ticket price to pay for the production. So the, the rise of the great show, the great production, uh, and the artist realizing, wow, going on the road isn't just performing and singing my songs. It, it's a spectacle, and I want to have the greatest uh, and most visual compelling show as well as my music. You were talking about the Stones. There was a period where those concert tours were getting really big, the ticket price was getting really big, and you looked at it, if, if you were me, and said, wait, wait, everyone who's going on tour and charging a ton of money is old as old as the Rolling Stones. It's Elton John, it's Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And the big problem with the concert business is going to be these guys are going to eventually be dead and or unable to tour, and no one's going to come up behind them. But it seems like you guys have figured out how to sort of cultivate a new generation of artists that are right. under the age of 40, still able to drop up, draw people. And yeah, be- I, I mean, you know, we've said this, we've been public 10 years, so probably for 10 years I have, uh, you know, less maybe this year, but probably the eight years of that you know, an analyst or somebody would say, oh, my God, how, but who's the next Rolling Stones? Who's the next U2? Uh, we've never felt that or f- uh, when we're in the industry um, because every year we, we see it. We see, you know, the new Taylor Swifts out of the blue, the Justin Bieber's, the, the, the Luke Bryan selling stadiums out, um, you know, the Nicki Minaj, the Rihanna's. So we, we've always seen this regeneration of superstars. Um, we, we haven't felt it in kind of the supply chain, if you want to call it. You don't go a summer and go, oh, there's no one going on tour this year. No, we, we have never, you know, in, in 10 years, I always say to the, you know, less now, but for the first eight years, Wall Street would say to me, oh my God, what's the summer going to be like? They wanted to equate it to the movie studios. Where's your Spider-Man? And I would always say, I, I have no supply problems this summer. I am not worried that there's not going to be enough great artists. Why? Well, because, um, you know, 95% of the revenue that any artist is going to make is on the road. And artists have bills just like you and me. So artists make the money when they go on the road. They need to go on the road. Right. You're not pr- out persuading them not persuading to, to them tour. To They're tour. coming. It's really good economics. For so them. who is who is Spider-Man this summer? What's your tentpole release tour? Well, I, I mean, you know. Who's your favorite son? It's, well, let, let me just answer the first question. I mean, you know, Beyonce is just, it's a Mack truck. I mean, there's nobody as big as she is globally. You know, we just announced this morning we put more stadium shows up. Um, so, so she's just in a stratosphere by herself. And that's that's worldwide. Her appeal crosses worldwide, everywhere, you know, top to bottom. Obviously, Adele is is, is gigantic too. So both of those are, are going to kind of run away. But listen, we got we got Guns and Roses doing a stadium tour that sold out very fast. Um, you know, Rihanna's on a stadium tour. Luke Bryan's out doing. Coldplay sold out tons of stadiums around the world. So very, very strong summer. And then, and then one of the things that has changed in your business, right, is it used to be it's the Beyonce tour, it's the U2 tour. And then over the years, you guys have moved more into festivals. For a while, you're doing EDM. We can talk about that in a second. And now you're not in Coachella, but you're Lollapalooza. All, all of the big sort of multi-day, multi-artist festivals, that's a big deal for you guys as well. Right, yeah. You're not doing Coachella. That's, that's your rival, AG. Yep. They're also sponsoring one that's produced by my, my pals of The Verge. Uh, the Panorama Festival in right. New York. That, but be, what, so you, uh, Governor's Ball, that's a big one in New York. What, what else? Yeah. Well, we, we, you know, we have about 80 festivals. We have lots in Europe, too. Glastonbury's and Tea in the Park. And those yeah. are better for you economically, right? Yes. Because why? There's less risk? Well, because you know, the, the generally, 
you know, if you look at the concert business, so let me answer your first question. Just yeah. the way we look at, at the business since, uh, since again, 10 years ago, we did a few thousand shows. Uh, now we're going to do 30,000. But, but we've, we've always had a very simplistic strategy on the content called the concert. Um, that was one to go global. So, you know, although we talk about AEG here, AEG is not global. They're a U.S. competitor. Uh-huh. Nowhere outside do they, do they challenge us. So we wanted, one, to make sure we go global because, uh, when you know, thanks to the, uh, the Internet helped the artist, even though it hurt the recording, that, you know, Beyonce is huge in Colombia because of the Internet, not because of the old gatekeepers. So, one, we wanted to go global. And then, you know, you look at us as, as kind of like a multi-channel businesses, we just want to make sure we're in every channel of live that's important. You know, so we want to have our speed channel as well as our, our ABC, if you want to call it. So, you know, we do 8,000 club shows that are, are huge business for us for kind of hitting that younger demo. Um, we have a huge country division called Country Nation. We have an Insomniac division, which is our EDM division. Um, we have Festival Republic, which is, you know, our festival business over in Europe. We have a huge touring division, very different than our local business. We have a jazz division. So we have, you know, we want to make sure that we can specialize in all the niches mm-hmm. uh, with the right personnel and the right people. Festivals, we were already in them. So because maybe my, my five years I spent in London, uh, you know, festivals have been forever outside of America, right. the foundation to concerts. It's what you did. Yeah, what's what I did, but it just no. But it's know. it's what you did if you wanted. It was a standard thing yeah, to was, go to Glastonbury or yeah, wherever and this hang out for three days. Exactly, and in all Europe, and it, you know, you think about it. Why? Well, because outside of America, you don't have NBA and NHL. Thus, you don't have arenas. So, in in every other country in the world, you only had an option of do you put an artist in a football stadium or some crappy arena you have. So, um, festivals were just you know kind of fabric to, to the European and why, why do you think they blew up in the U.S. the last few years? Bonnaroo, that's another yeah, one of yours. Well, I think it, you know, at some point, you know, when you're these artists, these managers, and you're seeing the world where you have an artist, Foo Fighters, and you're going there playing 20 of these great festivals. And, you know, the festival is a huge advantage to most artists, right? Because you get to show up. There's 70,000 to 100,000 people. A huge percent of those aren't your core fans. You're not traveling with 35 trucks of production. You get to go, you know, kind of sample your music to a whole new audience, uh, higher economics for you as the artist, because you're showing up with a, you know, your band and a small, a small set. So of your costs are lower. That's why you're not, you're not generating, you know, your fee isn't bigger, but your, your costs are less. Right. If you're, if you're getting paid a million to play an arena or a million to play a festival, you're taking home 70% of that money, 75% at the festival versus maybe 40 at the arena. So that million to play either of those options is a much better economics yeah. for an artist. Plus, you're probably playing to three times as many people. So generally, the, you know, the festival was a great platform for artists. And it typically happened. An artist would say, some years it's really important to own my own production, control the environment, and do my own tour. Some years I'll go back, and it's okay that I don't control and the environment, in. but I'll play 20 festivals. So at some point, all of these artists that were always playing the international festivals, you know, they, they started to kind of understand the value of it and uh, and I've always given Paul Tillett credit at Golden Voice who you know was really started uh, with Coachella way back in the day and started to build a real tentpole festival in a market like California that was an important place. So this is the artist saying we want to do these things yeah. and then turns out there's a big demand for it if they show up. And again I give you the economics. So we know that the fans love festivals. That's not a you know it doesn't take a lot of science to understand what 24-year-old doesn't want to be where mass gathering of people are to have fun celebrating music. Maybe, right? maybe inebriated. 
for a couple of days. Exactly, right? Yeah. So we, we get that, of course, fans want to have, they're going to have a lot more fun. Uh, when we do our research and we ask a fan, where do you want to see a show? Um, they're always going to say, well, we want to see our favorite. We want to see Drake at the Troubadour, right? So they're always going to say. Small club. Small club. Second, they're going to say outdoor amphitheater festival. Of course, because I can drink. I can, you know, I can smoke a doobie. I can have fun. Or then the arena, you know, which is a much more controlled environment. So we know fans love festivals. We know artists love having that option of playing a festival circuit. The big reason why festivals didn't take off um, is you got to remember is, you know, America, because of its real estate boom, you know, was building arenas all over the place. So you had an economic difference. Is the challenges in every city in America, you had a new arena, an old arena, two amphitheaters. You maybe had four big venues saying, no, no, I, I want the Drake show. So most of the times, if you were the promoter and you were debating, let's do a festival in Jones Beach. Let's do a festival in uh, Indianapolis. You know, there were four already established venues. Four that, empty arenas that needed Drake to show up. And they're going to pay you. They're Throwing say, money at you. We, we, you know, don't, don't, don't take seven headliners and make one night out of it. We'll pay you to come and play seven times. Where in Europe and the rest of the world, there is no ven- venues doing that. So for a long time, the, the economics, the infrastructure of the abundance of venues, you know, I always say that the challenge, the reason we were obsessed with not being in the real estate business is there's way more buildings than there are artists. So, you know, it was much easier economically for us to fill an amphitheater and two arenas than Greenfield an event. Just so I'm clear, because I always think of the music business as a real estate business, and you just said, we, we don't want to be in that. I mean, isn't, isn't a big part of what you do that you either own the venue or you control the venue? And effectively, we were just talking about a scenario where there's four different places in Indianapolis who want Drake to show up. But in a lot of the cities, right, there's one place where you're going to come through if you're an artist of a certain size. That's your venue. Either you control that venue or AEG controls that venue. It seems no. like it is a real estate. No, deal. no. No. Well, let me just be clear. AEG has a Staples Center in Kansas City. Uh-huh. It's two. Okay. So, you, so, so it's a real estate business where you control almost all the real estate. No. So we don't. Just be clear what our business model is. We're going to promote 25,000 shows this year. The reason that we've been able to deliver that value, that growth, and also be over here in an artist management business is the artist does believe that we are artist-centric. We're going to put the artist wherever is best for the artist. So what we do is our business model is once we have the consolidated content, it's to figure out whatever venue will pay us the best economics to bring that scale. So it could mean uh, the Barclays Center or MSG is better economically for me than Jones Beach because they're going to pay me an ongoing uh, fee and rebate to bring content there. So our job is to figure out where the best economics are to put the content. Um, Now, in cases where we may lease the venue or manage the venue, we never build venues, we don't buy venues, we don't use our capital to be in the real estate development business like AEG. But there are opportunist times when an amphitheater or uh, you know, maybe Webster's Hall, which is up right now, yeah. we'll look at that and say, if we could take the lease over and make our 12 to $22 a head and still fill it, then that's a better model than us putting it in the T5 venue. So we'll make decisions whether, if there's an opportunist time to manage a building, is that a better economics than supplying someone else's building? And sometimes in some markets, it's not. It's better off us just saying, Hey, we're, we're happy to fill your building and you pay us $12 a head. Um, 
So our number one goal is the more content you have and the more shows you have, the more so opportunities you want. It's you more have. important for you to control content than the venue. Hundred percent. You, you mentioned management. You guys have a management business where you will manage the, some of the artists that you're taking on tour, help them sell T-shirts, etc. For a while, again, as the record business was to, the record business, as the music business was really convalescing. There was a lot of talk about 360 deals, and either you guys or the record labels, you were going to do these deals where you participated in every venue and everything where an artist made money, you or the record label or someone was going to participate in all of that. It seems like you hear less of that. Now, there was a period where you guys were going to become record label, basically. It seems like you backed off from that. Do I have that right? Yeah, I would say... We were going to be a record label, but I would say yes. We um, you're going to help Jay Z release records, we, we Madonna dabbled. release records. Well, I'd say differently. We, we, here's what we dabbled at the time. We um, we fail fast sometimes when we don't get it right. So uh, the premise is this: we would sit back there and at that time, I don't know, it was five years ago now, whatever it was. But I would sit there and go, "Geez, we're going to we're going to spend. I mean, in 2016, I'm going to spend about three and a half billion dollars on talent fees. That's larger than everybody in the world. I think it was two billion back then." Because I remember and thinking the money you're paying up front to get the artist. No, at midnight, right? Tonight, seventy times t- tonight, there's a settlement at midnight. We're going to say, here's your four hundred and ten thousand that you made tonight, or your two hundred, or 80, at the end 000. of each show. End of each show. Transparent, no debate. Paid there. There's yep. not m- months and years of lawyers figuring out what was expensed or not. So real transparent, real cash flow. I think it was two billion at the time. So my belief was always, geez, if it's, we're going to spend two billion a year over ten years, that's twenty billion. Is there a way to prepay some of this? Can I get an economic return if I try to either buy more rights or buy longer rights? So the premise of the longer rights, which is still what we do, was the least economic show for me is when I bid against Bowery Presents for Green Day One Night at MSG. That's the least economic model for me because that means we've been, we both bid. I have only one night to make my money back. Um, I have no extended rights, and it's four hundred grand. You hope everyone shows up. And Super high risk, and, and you're you're capped. You're capped. The, the the next best version for me is when we talk to an artist about a, maybe a U.S. deal or multiple dates. Okay, so now I've got thirty or forty dates, and you know what? If Pittsburgh doesn't sell out, but New York oversells, I can cross collateralize it. I've got some other revenue streams. You've in reduced there. your risk. Reduce my risk. And the best deal for me is a global deal and time. So if uh, U2 uh, was our first deal. So that was the premise. If I could sign you up. You write them U- a giant check and say, for the next X number of years, we're working together. We're working together. We're partners now. We are, as I always say, we're married. It's not a one-night affair. This is, we're in. We're going to wake up and figure out how to make the pot bigger You're for paying you. them hundreds of millions of dollars in advance. No, no, that's not true. Nope. We did, the press was wrong at the time. We don't pay anybody hundreds of millions of dollars in advances. All you're ever committing is to the guarantee that you will pay a okay. certain amount of money over time. You've got to perform still. You've got to show up and... All that, but you're guaranteed. Them, you right? do it's have a, to go on the road. Yeah, and you got to, you know, it's staged and, yeah. but it's an insurance policy yeah. for the band, right? But that motive to us is the best. Then we're fully vested. We've got sponsorship. We're trying to bring, you know, uh, deals to the table to build the pot. At that point, what happened is when we started to talk to the U2s and the Madonnas about this kind of deal, the, the reality was they'd say, geez, to buy my rights to touring for 10 years, that's this much money. You know, that's 85% of my value. Why don't I just throw the record in there, too, for an extra? It's almost like the cherry on top of it. Yeah. And you guys said, that sounds good. Yeah, we were, you know, we didn't wake up going, we want to be a record label. But we went, that's, I get it, because that's their leverage. So, you know, okay, let's do it. Now, we didn't do it with you, too, which was smart. We just stuck, stayed to our knitting and have had a very fruitful relationship. 
Madonna, we did, we ended up, you know, taking the cherry. And so what happened there? Did it turn out that you guys weren't good at being a record label? Or did it turn out that just being a record label is not a great business, period? I think at the time, both. I, I don't think, you know, we were not in the, in the rights business back then. We didn't have any secret sauce on how to distribute that album better than somebody else. Uh, why we thus ended up selling Shakira and Madonna back to the label to recoup our yeah. record investment. So, you know, I, I said on the earnings call yesterday, I, I think why we have, uh, you know, 10 years ago when we started the concert business, we did an IPO. We were $400 million cap. AEG was owned by Phil Anschutz. I mean, Tim Lewicki used to love telling the world the richest man in the world is, you know, going to destroy us. And they're so big. There were thousands of promoters. Um, and we were one of many. And I, I think the reason 10 years later we're now larger than all of them combined is because we've had a very small to-do list and a big don't-do list. And we've just stayed focused on scaling, 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 global concerts, global concerts. So every time that we maybe get a little bit in, you know, to adjacent and believe yeah. we may have this skill over here, we continually learn that the dollars spent buying one more global governor's ball or one more core uh, asset around our core is where we're going to multiply our return versus uh, the record business at that time or buying an extra right like that. Speaking of ads, we're going to help sponsors sell stuff right now. We'll be right back. This interview is brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is a modern finance company. They offer incredible rates on student loan refinancing that saves members an average of $19,000. On top of that, members get things big banks can't provide. Perks like career services. They'll set you up with a career coach. They'll help you switch industries all while they work to help you conquer your student debt. Big banks can't do that. Head over to SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Hey, we're back with Michael Rapino. Michael, um, you were just saying, look, we've dabbled in other businesses besides sort of live events. We keep coming back to live events. That's what we're good at. Seems like there's an obvious play for you guys to get into streaming music at some point in some capacity. Pandora, which is in the streaming music business, has got into ticketing and, and concerts. Pandora's available. Um, would you consider buying a company like Pandora or starting a streaming service? Why not put that in your portfolio? Yeah, I think um, I think we'll leave the streaming arms race to the big boys right now. I think, you know, I think Spotify has done a fabulous job. And, and to Daniel's credit, uh, Apple obviously just has the, the scale and muscle to keep getting it better and better. And uh, uh, obviously we're partners with Jay-Z and um, are non-investors, but huge supporters and want Jay and, and Title and Rock Nation to always um, win. So no, we're, we're not going to look at how, you know, I, I, I like to remind my guys that if you think about our business at the core we're closer to a travel company than we are to a record label. And that my real job is you know, 73 million fans will come to a Live Nation show this year. And an average customer goes to two and a half shows a year. You know, middle America, middle of France, wherever it is. It's a big adventure to say, I'm going to save my money. I'm going to go to Beyonce's show or with my buddies to ACDC. So it's a real destination. It's, a, it's their Kodak moment. It ranks right up there, one or two, in terms of their most important experience of the year. And, and then you go to another fact that says, and still a huge percentage of customers didn't know that a certain show was playing in a certain market. So our, our business is real simple. We gotta, if we can get that customer to three shows a year. Because it's a couple shows a year, right? That's yeah, it's a couple shows a year. On average, for everyone. For everyone. It's a big deal to go to a concert. It's, a big it's deal. not going to the movies. It's not renting a movie. No, it's you know valued very highly, too. So, um, so if whether we can get you to three shows a year, or quite honestly, whether 73 million people, if I sell them 
you know, $1 more a year, right? If I can upsell you, if I can get you to buy the VIP package versus the P1, if I can get you to buy the, the upgraded T-shirt, if I can, you know, enhance your experience, let's call it Disneyland, right? Um, my business will do very, very well if we just continually figure out how to super serve 73 million fans, grow 73 million fans by incremental shows, incremental events, and incremental spend. So why I hired you know this guy named Tom C as our chief revenue officer from Disney, versus you know hiring a an A and R guy from a record label, right? I'm more interested in how do I keep getting more people to the show, making sure Ticketmaster and our technology and our data has a better conversion. How do I run a better theme park? How do I run a better sales and theme park? So I got the content that's going to keep doing, and we're going to keep making sure we scale that. Ticketmaster's job is to keep getting better at the product user experience to convert you because we're still, you know, we could, you know, we always joke there's Amazon, but, you know, everyone wants to have that as a gold star. But, you know, if we just can convert Ticketmaster 1% or 2% better a year out of our current 13 or 14% conversion, it's a huge number, right? Periodically, you guys also get into the business of streaming a show, right? You did a deal with Yahoo a couple years ago. You guys just announced a whole series of, or I guess one, I mean, a whole series of virtual reality uh, concerts, um, or you're going to be doing that. Is that ever going to be a significant part of your business, or is that sort of a marketing thing for you guys? No, we think it, um, so go to our third part of our business we haven't talked. So we obviously talked, you know, we, at our core, it's about getting 25,000 shows and more. Ticketmaster's job is what it is to, uh, to convert that customer and get them in that show. And then the largest part of our actual revenue, our EBITDA, uh, a profit, is our sponsorship business. We have uh, 900 sponsors. It's your most profitable business. Most profitable piece. So you have 900 sponsors who look at us as the NFL, a Fortune 500 company. And if you've decided that you want to use music or talk to the music consumer, we're the best option for you at scale. So we, we're the, you know, by far the best version. If you want to talk to 73 million fans, and by the way, I know what show you're going to be at on a Thursday. I've got great data demos about you. I can give that customer or that brand deep data analytics. But obviously, one of the realities of moving forward when you're talking to those 900 sponsors is you want to be able to offer them video at the simplest, right? So I sat with my, uh, my sponsorship team three years ago now in New York here. We have 600 salespeople and said, how do we keep growing double digit? How do we double the business? How do we keep moving it? And they would have said at the time, listen, we need two things. We got to build our festival strategy out. Thus, we ended up buying C3 EDM and we got to have video. So we did the first part and now we're the leader by far both US and on, on the assets of festivals. Um, and then we started, you know, kind of walking and proving the concept out on first a Yahoo deal and then a Vice deal green light. So our strategy is, yes, do we believe that when you're doing 25,000 shows a year, and now the cost to shoot that show is so cheap compared to the HBO days of four camera extravagans, um, the artist has no real options right now. There's no DVD money left. No one's paying you to stream your show. It's probably free on YouTube. So um, if you can provide those artists with a great quality production some added awareness, some control of the IP, and then also, you know, provides us a, a better opportunity for another ad unit. We think that we, we so, can so it's it's ancillary. It's not like the movie business where if you're selling me, if you're letting me rent a James Bond movie at home, that probably means I'm I'm less likely to go see it in the theater. Or that's the risk that theater guys have. 
you're under no illusion that, or you don't have to worry about that. I'm not going to go see Beyonce at, a, at City Field. No, because I'm going to no. stream it. No, if no. I have the choice. No, we would we would be the opposite. We would believe that, you know, the sold out shows are, are going to continue to sell out. Um, and like any business, you know, my job this year isn't to figure out how to count the Beyonce money. It's to figure out how to sell blank artist on a Tuesday night in Detroit, who's sixty percent sold, right? So because even I could sell Beyonce at some point. Well, I don't know. Probably not. Probably not. But, um, but yes. So our job is to figure out and just how to get added exposure, right? So first and foremost, you know, right now, if you look at Twitter, or Facebook, Instagram, you know, name the social, social channel, well, one of the highest ranking postings is going to be music, concerts, I was at the show, look at me. So we have this beautiful gift called uh, the consumer is our new promoter anyways. Right now, you know, there's a thousand tweets up last night for Justin Bieber's show. Everyone's got a camera. They all want to show they were there. I'm here. So that's great. And if there's, you know, a show in two months and you didn't know about it, we've seen our awareness of concerts rise. We've changed most of our advertising now to online. So it's, get, it's much more efficient. Um, so anyways, any version we can do to help bring that show to life, monetize those two hours of magic outside of the 73 million customers. And so I'm probably not going to sit with a pair of VR goggles and watch an entire Beyonce show. But if I do, why not participate in that? If I'd watch for 10 minutes, why not participate in that? Exactly, yeah. Does it matter to you that the consumer knows that the Beyonce show is a Live Nation production, or does that not matter? You know, we're, we're still working through that. I would say, you know, first and foremost, on the Live Nation side, we've, you know, done a very good job, obviously, establishing our B2B brand, both from internal and corporate right, America. It's important for advertisers to know who you are. Yeah, so I think we've done our job on... Um, on advertisers and agents and artists and et cetera. We've always played secondary on our branding. We haven't had the, you know, the Vivo channel right. where we want to define our brand by it yet. And also, you know, one of the challenges with the Live Nation brand is, unlike Disneyland, is I don't, you know, the 25,000 shows, 98% of those shows are going to happen in venues I have no control over. Right. So the challenge is always, uh, you know, I have two this morning is, you know, somewhere every day a fan wakes up and goes to a Beyonce show or a show in a venue. They don't like the security. They couldn't yeah. park. Um, I can't give them that. Hey, it's a Live Nation show. You're good. Everything will be good. Right. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen tonight at the club we don't own with the security. So our proposition isn't really, you know, the trusted Disneyland. When you go to a right. Live Nation show, expect all this. And level. fundamentally, right? I'm going to say Beyonce. I'm not going, I'm going to, to see Beyonce. Live Nation. The, your fans do know who Ticketmaster is. It, it, it's the thing everyone loves to complain about. Right. Whenever you and I talk, we always talk about the challenge of this. Are you guys actively trying to say, look, how do you make that experience better for the the fans? Right. The major complaint is I can't buy the ticket. Right. Or I can buy the ticket, but it's I'm I'm paying a giant markup. It seems like it's a broken process. You guys have been dealing with this every year. Right. If, if I'm if I'm thinking about buying a Beyonce ticket this summer, what can you tell me that's going to make me feel better about my odds of buying a ticket, or at least how that process is going to work? Right. Well, listen, I, you know, you nailed some of the challenges. That what we loved about Ticketmaster when we merged, uh, you know, it still was the market leader by far. It's got over twelve thousand venues. That you know, the venue has uh, uh, sold their right of exclusivity to a ticketing company, and Ticketmaster is the leader. And you're right. For many, many years, the system was always, you know, Ticketmaster would be the bad guy, right? Ticketmaster charges $10 service fee. Little dirty secret is 70% of that's going to the venue. The venue then is paying the promoter a rebate, and the promoter with his rebate is able to pay the artist a lot of money. But the reality is 
Ticketmaster is the one that has to take the punch in the chin um, for the exclusivity. And, you know, I, I always joke there's always some, you know, there's some version of brands that when I talk to them, we'll talk about wanting to be in the ticketing business. And I always joke with them on it's, you know, it's, you know, number one way to really mess up your brand proposition is be the guy that tells, you know, 9.6 million mothers they can't have an Adele ticket. Right, because no one's mad at Adele. No. No one's mad at the no. venue. No. They're it's blind. just reality check. If there's just, you know, an Adele, Beyonce, Bruce Springsteen, there's just there's no supply demand, right? There is only 12,000 seats in the, at MSG, and there's 404 million people that want tickets. So, you know, we always joke in ticketing. There's only three customers, right? If you bought and were lucky enough to get a great seat at a Bruce Springsteen show, you love us. If you had a crappy seat there, you know, love us, but you're okay with us because you got in. And then you have 4.1 million customers who hate us, who can't understand why they couldn't see Bruce Springsteen. So they have to direct their anger somewhere. Uh, supply demand is what it is. And then, unfortunately, they go on Internet and see eight pages of scalpers and then get confused. This must be – the system must be broken. Ticketmaster must have given them tickets. Um, we're on the fix. And that's been the massive inefficiency in the business. So let's talk about why that's created, and then we'll talk about is there a way to start rectifying it. So, that you know, the challenge has been we are the only industry in the world where the um, primary value, the minute you sell it, has more value. There is no other industry in the world that would... It usually would, goes would, the other would, way, would, right? Would, you drive allow, the car off a lot, it's less valuable. Right. And I always remember the one that really woke me And just me to be clear, it's more valuable because I've, you sell the Bruce Springsteen ticket, but there's more demand for it, exactly. ideally. Which um, it, because it's supply, demand, and pricing, right? So right. most industries, most companies wake up trying to find that match, right? And I always remember, i got to give Meg Whitman credit when she was at eBay. Uh, we used to uh, have great conversations about working together. And I remember the first time we met, she said, you know, eBay is the largest or second largest retailer in the world. We're the largest seller of Rolexes in the world. And Rolex has a full-time team figuring out every day how to make sure that gap between the Explorer's worth seven, but you can resell it for 71. Just enough of a gap to make it an active market, but not a wide gap. I've never seen a business like yours, Michael, where you know, the ticket is worth more the second it's sold. Why would you give all those economics away? And then you get into the reality is because the artists, you know, who are some of the greatest brand managers uh, in history are very obsessed. Bruce Springsteen wants to be able to say to his fan, of course, I charge an affordable ticket. The what's, problem, the av- what's the average ticket price for Bruce this tour? Well, it was always 99. We're up to about 125 for the, for the good seats now. You could still find a $75 ticket. You know, right. So it's still very affordable. I and mean, so Barclays, it was Barclays your show? Yeah. So what, what, what was the ticket actually selling for in the secondary market? Oh, it's going to go for, you know, four or five times that. Okay. So there's, yeah. there's four or $500. That Bruce Springsteen isn't getting directly. We're not getting it. Ticketmaster is nobody's purchasing. And so there's, there's about $8 billion sitting on the sidelines, right? And that, so your answer is Bruce Springsteen should charge more. Well, my answer is, you know, if you're went, over the last 10 years, what happened is the scalpers lived on the, on the corner and it was okay. We didn't know, didn't know what they really charged. Then when StubHub came, sunlight started to come to, to it. Owned started, by eBay. Owned by eBay. And you started to go, oh my God, look at how many, how much money those tickets are going for. And, you know, most of the time, you know, they were still the bad guys perceived. But at some point when you leave $8 billion of revenue outside of any industry, there's going to be another industry created to monetize. So what's happened now is when you leave $8 billion, you know, you get really good people trying to figure out how to maximize that. So now the challenge is you have at a, a, any on sale, a Ticketmaster, AEG, any, any ticketing site you want to pick, 
the, the Lakers, any, any valuable team, when they have an on sale, 90% of those uh, are going to be bots at that 10 o'clock. Right. So the reason I can't buy that Bruce Springsteen ticket is I'm, I'm literally fighting computers. You're fighting computers from Asia, Eastern Europe, you name it, who are trying to get a hold of that ticket. Hold it because they know that that ticket's worth four times more the second it's sold. Now, we have, you know, every day we have better and better technology, but it's an arms race. I mean, you know, we're, we, we're the best in the world at it, Ticketmaster, with our technology security department, but it's $8 billion. To make it harder for a bot to buy that. Yeah, and we can, but the bot's still going to beat. We can identify it this week and then the next week it's, you know, it's an arms race. It's when, the, like I keep saying the number, but it's $8 billion. That's, you know, that's like cocaine money. That is a real industry. That's going to attract a lot of good people. So uh, the challenge is what I always say to the artist or anybody is, you know, listen, we can have the best technology. We can try to, you know, stop it. We can try to isolate it. But you can't ever fix this when you leave that much money off the table. So raise your price. So either participate or accept. Um, now, the good news is, is sports will always be first because, you know, they can control it more. The NFL's done a fabulous job. Obviously, they're usually the ones that lead the way. We have an NFL exchange with them now the last probably five years. And I know when we started the NFL exchange, which means if you want to buy or sell a ticket on the NFL exchange, which is a white-labeled exchange we provide the NFL, when we started, as you can imagine, 100% of the football tickets were being traded on StubHub. As of last year, I think the numbers are closer to about 85% was controlled by the exchange. Less than content is now is participating in it. And then the NBA, the NHL, and now slowly artists are seeing that. So I think... So when you say participate, right? Bruce Brink can either charge more up front or he can participate in the secondary sales that you guys help facilitate. You guys have your own versions of StubHub. Right. I think, well, I think two things. I think the sports world will participate in all levels because they're, you know, they're less pure, right? They There's can, less emotion attached to it. Everyone gets that a Golden State Warriors ticket's going to cost a lot of money. Yeah, and they can charge it. And, and no one and, begrudges them that. No, and they got stadiums, and there's a whole bunch of economics there. Harder for a single brand uh, like Bruce or, or, or Drake to say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to scalp my tickets. But what, the, what it does is it brings the sunlight that it comes to it is, you know, slowly every day now, every, every cycle you go through with an artist, you usually have the same fight. The fight usually is, how much am I going to charge for my P1s? And usually it's way too low. A P1 is? The, the, the best seats, you yeah. know, the first 20 rows, let's call it. Usually our debate is, you know, is it, is it 110? Is it 120? And you want to say, it's 700. Stop it. But because they're brilliant with their brands, they want to find that fine line. And why we're always advocates of why it should be more is because the real problem in our business is, what are you charging for the last 20 rows? That should be $19, not $39. Um, so what you see now, though, is platinum, VIP. You find different ways where, we're, where the artist is now saying, okay, I will have some platinum seats at $500 or VIP packages, which is, I think, a, you know, a way that they feel good about charging a higher price for those good seats. And the more and more that happens, the less and less the, the market is active. So you know, if you look at the horizon over time, let's call it five years from now, eventually these all will merge together. There can't, you know, 8 billion can't sit on the outside from content for long. So eventually um, it has to come to the middle. And, you know, what's great about our business is that's just, the, you know, our pure motive, as I always remind people, isn't to sell a ticket at our TM exchange. We, Live Nation, our Ticketmaster, put one ticket on the secondary. We don't benefit on the $700 Beyonce ticket. The scalper or the mom and pop seller buyer get the uplift. 
our great motive is that eight billion is in the gross, and that we are splitting it with the artist, and we make our our piece, and the artist makes the seven hundred. So our number one motive is to get the eight billion in the gross for the content, not to be on the sidelines making a service fee on a secondary. I mean, ticket. really, what you're telling the fan is, look, there's only so many seats times this much demand so it's going to cost this much it's just a matter of where you're going to get it from and and how many different layers there are before before that money makes its way back to, or doesn't make its way back to the artist or not right yeah you know i think it's you know there's a, here's the double edge right is when you say charge what the market bears then you get the other side that says well geez then now it's it's an elitist game right, right. if i can't afford i can't go which is a great you know is a great theory but you know we have to remind people that Whatever show you're talking about, Drake. Drake's going to play New York, what, two times, three times every three years. Now let's, what, the, the Rangers are going to play 80 times every year, the, the Yankees, the Mets. I mean, what's a, what's a court side at the Knicks game? So there, there where, you're, where you're talking about sports, theater, opera, blah, blah, are hundreds of dates in the marketplace yeah. and still charging more yeah. if you're going to call kind of you know, supply-demand. But a Drake show or a superstar playing twice over 400 dates or 600 dates, supply-demand means you're probably not going to be able to see them for $130 because it's just the demand is higher. Okay. So I think, you know, I think we have to figure out how to – we have to meet the market to, to address the $8 billion. We've got to actually price the show better. And are you still waiting in on Twitter? And, and, and I remember at one point we were talking. You said, yeah, I get on Twitter and people complain and I'll, I'll, I'll mix it up with them. Is that still happening? Are you spending your time on, on Twitter? Dealing with, with trolls or complainers? Seems like not. Seems well, let's like not say, let's not, let's not belittle it to that level, but yes. Dissatisfied we, customers? No, I, I think, listen, here's what happened. When we launched a ticketing company six years ago, when we didn't renew with Ticketmaster, I'll back up. One of the biggest things I think that if I get credit for anything is that the strategy that we really made back in the day with the, with the board is I, when, when we were the concert company, I said to the board, we really only have two paths, Right. We can dress this up and sell it to a label or someone as a, who wants a live division. Or you know, the center of the wheel is becoming live. If we can build our business and hold on, we will have a very strong business. But the fundamental strategy that we have to come to terms with from a DNA perspective is we have to shift from a B2B business to a B2C, which if you think about it, that's very critical because – that's what most of Hollywood and entertainment companies don't do, right? Labels are B2B. Right. Um, and, and Movie I, studios are B2B. You don't know who your actual customer is. That's right. the theater selling that ticket. Or right. the cable so, company selling that on-demand. Yeah, all, and now they all want it. So I was obsessed back then. If we don't become B2C, we're going to be screwed in the middle. The content will do well, and whoever shakes the customer's hand, and we'll get squeezed. So we got to do B2C. Uh, and when we at first didn't renew with Ticketmaster, um, that was a huge strategic decision. We, we, I always remember the time period. We, we made about 120 million EBITDA at the time. I think 95 million a year was a Ticketmaster check. I was a public company, and I went out and said, we're not going to renew. We're going to replace that 95. You're going to um, build your own ticketing group. Right? Yeah, but you know, as, as I joked at the time, I put a real expiration date on my CEO title, meaning it was either going to work January 1 or this was the dumbest mistake ever. Uh, but I was so committed that if we didn't own the customer. So getting to that story is uh, we went and licensed the software and started Live Nation ticketing on that January 1, 2009. And I got a bunch of emails that day from pissed off customers. And being, you know, juniors at the game, 
I was, we, we had everything right. We obsessed for 18 months to make sure we could get a ticketing platform that could deliver tickets that day that we turned off Ticketmaster. What we didn't do is actually build out a very good customer service department. So I joked that day that all these customers called me and went, hey, I'm pissed off. The security guard uh, was in my way last night. Hey, the parking sucked. And I sent it to all my employees and I said, welcome to being in the B2C business. You know, the good news is, you know, we're going to have a direct relationship with a customer. The bad news is they're going to tell us what they know and we better listen to them. So from that day, I answered them and I always answered them saying, hey, you pay the bills. We didn't deliver a good experience. Our fault will refund. Um, I have been, I do that to this date, to, to this morning. Why? Because I think it's very important. The reason our DNA changed at Live Nation is I believe that our employee base of a, you know, 41 countries do believe two things. We do believe we work for the artist and we make uh, a living because of the fan. And from those two tentacles, you know, I think our business is very different based than maybe some of the other ones. And that delivers you a different kind of perspective on, on what you do. So for me, it's very important that, yes, my employees, because I get an email maybe once a week where a customer says, I'm pissed off. You find your email. And Detroit guy, your guy in Detroit hasn't responded. And I'll just respond. I'll see the Detroit guy and go, hey, this guy pays your bills. What's up? Solve it. I think that's a very important message to keep reminding our employees that, you know, they, they pay our bills. We're in the service business. We didn't write Purple Rain. Um, we don't think we own, you know, the copyright. We think that we are here to service these great creators and build a, a, a scalable business around it. We got a bonus question here from Sean. Are, are you becoming a recurring character on the show? I like it, Sean. <laughs> you got a question for Michael? So I was just curious to talk about the Louis C.K. model and see if that looks like it could be a threat to businesses like Ticketmaster and Live Nation down the road. What do you think, Michael? Well, you know, I don't know the specifics. I would say that, um, you know, this, the comedy guys generally sometimes kind of operate in their own, um, their own sphere. But I would say two things. When we took Ticketmaster over four years ago, you know, we, we had to really re-energize that business. I mean, we fired probably 500 employees. We had to turn the DNA over. Ticketmaster, the Ticketmaster we bought believed that they were in the 10 a.m. processing business, that they were a transaction site, that, hey, it's stable at 10 o'clock. We bought a ticket. Good luck. And we had to blow that up and change that business into two places. One, we're in the B2B business that we service uh, venues and clients, and then two are in the consumer business. I would say maybe three years ago, uh, we were still living in, the, in a very closed platform. Um, historic DNA of Ticketmaster was, these are all the things you can't do. Um, and I've been very obsessed to turn that into a very, to an open business and a, and a much more progressive DNA. And I'm, I think the example, and I'll come back to Louis, was uh, two weeks ago when we announced finally our new uh, API that is now open on Facebook and bands in town. Um, so those are two uh, bands in town specifically where you have a bands in town app, which is a great app for uh, looking for concerts. You can browse concerts and buy the ticket within that app and, uh, and never, never end so up. So that's on the deal. plumbing end, right? But it, that's, I don't think that was his beef with the no, plumbing. No, but I'm saying yeah. that that's a strategic difference, right? That says we're not going to be obsessed as we used to be that, hey, you want to buy a ticket? Don't go to Bands and Towns. You got to come to Ticketmaster.com or forget it. Right. That was the but model. But they're, they're still ultimately buying from you. They just got a different front door. Yeah, but that, but, right? but, but that's, that's but Lewis Lewis's problem and the artist or the comedian problem at that time. Or there's an an artist. Their challenge is always the same, right? What they're really saying is, hey, 
I want a direct relationship with a customer. You know, as I always, I believed that, you know, once that artist started building their business on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and they, for once in life, were able to say, I have an audience. I'm Rihanna. I have 97 million people that I'm talking to. I'm no longer going to have platforms in front of me and my fan. So that started to change the business. So I was obsessed with Ticketmaster that we started to build a business that said, hey, Louis K or Rihanna, if you want to sell tickets at Rihanna.com or wherever you live, we'll power it. Now, for 40 years, Ticketmaster would have said, too bad, Louis K or Rihanna. If you want a ticket, it's got to be in my shop at my house, my way. So I would say to you, up until a few years ago, we had a very closed platform. So if Lewis K probably would have asked us back then, hey, I just want to sell my own tickets at my site. I want to have some of the data and I want to control the experience. We probably told him, no way. Only where you can sell tickets. If is I remember correctly, he was talking about the venue that he wanted to perform at and frankly how much the tickets were going to cost. And, and, he, and because he wasn't working with you guys, he ended up in these weird venues. I can't right. remember where he played in Manhattan, but it wasn't any of the standard venues. And, and that was his sort of complaint was, was the economics, not, not the mechanics of it. No, but it's all tied, right? What they were, but not, that's not true. What they end up complaining about is just if I play a venue, I don't want, someone, I don't want the venue to tell me how and where I can sell my tickets. I have my own audience. I sell my own, you know, his own CDs or DVD, whatever he was doing at the time. I want control. We would have the old Ticketmaster said, sorry, if you play a TM venue, here's the rules. So that provokes the challenge. Now, since then, yes, I've talked to the, the team, his, his manager over time. Um, I'm using the Facebook Bands in Town analogy to say to you, no, we're, the change that we were undergoing is where we are now. So today, when we say to a Lewis K., or any artist or content, we start with, what do you want to accomplish? You want the data? Do you need access to your data? Do you want to sell tickets on your own Facebook page? Do you want to sell them at your own website? How do we work to empower your platform, your fan base, and help you sell a ticket with our buy button versus the old strategy of getting a TM building and you've signed up to these rules? And walk away and we're done. Walk away. So I think you'll see us going forward. Our job is to say to the artist or the content or the creator, we're happy to play wherever you want to play because we're okay distributing our buy button and we'll follow your agenda versus you having to follow ours. So we could keep talking, but time is not infinite. I got wanted to ask you about Canada and growing up in the beer business. I'll do that for the second part when you come back Absolutely. in a year. So thank you, Michael. Appreciate thank it. You. Real pleasure. If you guys like listening to this, I hope you did. You can listen to it. By the way, it's free. It's on demand. It's the opposite of Michael's business. Subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe on Google Play. If you want to hear more stuff like this, Kara Swisher has Recode Decode. Lauren Good from The Verge has Too Embarrassed to Ask. Thanks again to our sponsors. Um, and thanks to Digital Media, who makes all of this possible. This is Recode Media. I'm Peter Kafka. I'm back next week with another great guest. See you then.